Well, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you have questions uh, that are, that come up or come to your mind or someone even asks you about something we're reading or talking about here at the podcast, or maybe it's even just a, a subject that comes up as you're reading scripture on your own, we would love to take time to field those questions. Uh, so there's two ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line, uh, let's or a podcast question, or you can direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, uh, and you can send us those questions there as well. Full disclosure, we will not be having a question section today because... But Evan, why not? Because we are in just, a, I don't even know what to call it. We're in a, we're in the biggest episode that we've ever done here in the history of Let's Read the Bible, as far as topics go, because we will be talking about Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Titus, Philemon, James, and Haggai... Um, and we're starting Zechariah. And we're not talking but about But we're not talking about Zechariah. So next week is going to be just Zechariah and Malachi. I looked ahead. And a, and a psalm. So Hey, isn't that nice? Isn't that great? So yeah, next week will be way more like kind of going chapter by chapter on a few of these. But this week we are talking about seven books of the Bible. They're all short, so there's that at least. But right. we're going to be talking about a lot of themes. We're going, to, we're going to be jumping around in the history of Israel and the history of God's people. But it's going to be, it's going to be a real fun time. So I'm, I'm excited for it. And let's get started with the book of Nahum. So that is actually how you say his name, by the way. Nahum. I actually don't know. I'm just making it up. Oh, I feel like I'm, I'm here for comic relief. Yeah, so you're welcome. I think, think. I feel like there's not like a there's not like a, oh, another way to pronounce it, is there? I don't know. Nahum. Do people say that? I don't know. I can I can look it up on the Nahum? U version. I always do it this way. I let U version read the the scripture to me, so I have an idea of how to pronounce stuff. So that's um, smart. I didn't do that today though. So why don't I do that more? <laughs> I just I just I don't want you to do that because I like it when you like say when Gethsemane. Just can't say word. Well, the yeah. Anyway, sorry, listeners. We're talking Zerubbable. about We're talking about Nahum. He's coming up to the, uh, today as well. <laughs> uh, so I wrote down in the notes that Nahum is the sequel that Jonah wanted but never lived to see <laughs> to his to his ministry. Um, it is, I mean, it's the whole thing is about Nineveh's destruction. So basically this is take, this is taking place after Jonah's ministry. Um, you can see Jonah in the background. Yeah. Yeah. A, get him. A generation or two has passed. And obviously the repentance of the Ninevites wasn't necessarily the most long lasting thing. And that's, that's hinted at in the book of Jonah as well. Like there, I, I'd never noticed this before, but they don't, the only characters who cry out to God but don't call him Yahweh are the Ninevites. So even the sailor, oh. even the sailors, when they when they cry out to God, they call him by the name of Yahweh. And so there is kind of like there's little hints that maybe it's not quite like this, you know. And obviously in the historical record, we know that like the Ninevites didn't all of a sudden become like these peaceful people. But there's also uh, I'm gonna forget the name of the king. I think it's I think it's yeah, it's Sennacherib. Sennacherib takes over after the after Jeroboam the second like a. 10 years, I think, after that, Sennacherib takes over. And then the Assyrians are like, hey, we should get back to that, like, you know, conquering the Middle East thing that we were doing before. And then they do it. So that's kind of what and happens. And that's exactly how they say it. Too. Hey, guys, you know, we should we should do that. We should go take Samaria. That'd be fun. We should get back to that. Anyway, sorry. So all of that happens. And so Nahum is, he's, he's prophesying. God's like, hey, Assyrians, you did it. You know, good job. Uh, prepare to be destroyed. <laughs> and so we know, here's the deal though. About Nahum, we know double the amount about him than we normally know about minor prophets because Ooh. we not only do we know his name, we also know his hometown, Elkosh. Um, we don't know where that is, but 
But we know he had a hometown. Yep, we know he was from a place, and that place was <laughs> probably in Judah, but, you know, who knows? At this point, Israel's gone, and so, I mean, the cities are still there, I suppose. Sad. But yeah, it's more than likely he is he is from Judah, or Judean. So, here's how, uh, here's how it starts out, just to kind of give you, just to set the tone for the book of Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in it in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Well, that's cute. Oh man, dude, that is so, <laughs> it is so intense. But I think it's like, part of it too, is I think there's also this nature of um, like they they got, they repented and then the God was like, okay, cool, mercy. And then they go right back to it. It's like, okay, yeah, you're, we're, Judgment. We're, we're, we're done now. This is going to be intense. Um, but I also love that. Remember, what is Jonah mad about? He says that you were, I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we are reminded of that where it says in verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But then it clearly makes sure the the point of that verse being there is that the Lord's slow to anger. He did. He, this is not a knee jerk reaction. Um, but you've driven him to anger now. So congratulations, Ninevites. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good work. The book is actually really easy to break down as far as themes go, or as far as sections go. And this is in the the essence of the Old Testament, which is a really good survey book if you want to kind of get a good overview of the whole Old Testament. You can do a lot worse. Than, I say it this way: if you want to nerd out about the Bible. Get, get some of these survey books. Yeah, really good. Uh, but the way that they have, I think it's Towns, Towns and, <laughs> I don't know why I said it that way. It's Towns and Gutierrez, right? Those are the authors. I get them mixed up with the other ones. But anyway, uh, it is chapter, the way you can break it down is chapter one, the destruction of Nineveh is decreed. Chapter two, it is described. And then chapter three, it is defended. So chapter one is saying, hey, this destruction is coming. Chapter two is saying, here's what's going to look like. And then chapter three is, and for those of you who think that this wasn't justified, here's why it was justified. It's kind of how the book of Nahum breaks down. Uh, so in the describing chapter, I'm just doing, we're not going to focus on it too much, but just to give you a taste, this is chapter Ooh. two, verse 13. And I, again, here's the thing, right? <laughs> just imagine for a moment hearing this and having any sort of faith that Yahweh is real and that he will do what he promises to do. Imagine hearing the prophet say, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour you, your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And th that is preceded by just this, this, it's descriptions of just complete annihilation of Nineveh. So... That's yes. heavy. Not that is very heavy. Not look, not looking good for them. Let me tell you. And then a couple of sections of chapter three. It's fine. We don't have to spend a ton of time in Nahum specifically because it's a very. It's kind of like Obadiah, where the the point of it is very open and shut. It's just yeah, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Uh, you had your chance. You blew it. It's coming. And we're in the similar way where Obadiah's whole thing is like yeah. 
Edom sucks. Judah rocks. The end. <laughs> it's, you know, there, it's, there's not a ton of like that. Like, what? What could he mean by this? Uh, but in Nahum chapter three, this is a little bit of the taste of why. Why is it coming for Nineveh? Why is God's wrath coming for Nineveh? It says, "Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all of the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and be- and peoples with her charms. Behold, and here's that language again. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So it's this idea of basically, it's embarrassing is what he's getting at, is that, and, and you know, to, to, to let you into the history, right? What's happening here? Well, first off, the Assyrians were exceptionally brutal. They were more brutal than, and here's the thing, the world back then was exceptionally brutal. Like it's, we, we think of yeah. like... This, yeah, we think of today, and it's what always makes me like not to make fun of people, I guess, but like when people talk about like the wars and rumors of wars passages, and they're like, just look at the world today. I'm like, this is the best time to be alive. <laughs> like, yes, there's wars going on, but like, let's be real about this. Like, there is way more war in other times in history. Like, th- this period of time was exceptionally brutal. There was a lot of chaos, there's a lot of empires, and their way of conquering was not through economic means, it was straight up through bloodshed. Yep. And the Assyrians, there's stories about, um, and we don't need to go into all of them because they can be exceptionally brutal, but there's ones where they would um, they would go through villages, they would kill all of the men, and then they would make the women and children march out holding the heads of the, of the men that they killed. Um, there's stories where to, as a form of torture, they would cut off both legs and one arm and then bury someone in the dirt. And then they would leave the one arm so that they could all shake hands with them as they were leaving. And then they left them out there to die. Like the, And then if you look at the... Uh, I forgot which king it was, but one of the, maybe a Sargon, I don't know. One of the kings though, his whole mural of like his reign is just like, it's literally what the Bible says here in, in Nahum, which just corpses upon corpses. And that's how he's, he's being described. So the Assyrians were a warlike people. Um, they believed that their, their main God was Asher. And they believed that Asher gave them the right to rule the world and that he would they would rule by conquest. And so they were a nation built on the idea of war. They were exceptionally brutal and Yahweh is punishing them for that sin. So there you go. Um, and then as far as like the embarrassment of it, Babylon was subservient to Assyria for most of its history. Babylon's mm-hmm. a city to the south. Um, they would rebel once in a while and it would always get put down. So it's kind of just a, this annoying thorn in the side of Assyria. Um, but what Nahum is talking about here is Babylon, that little brother country is going to become a great empire and they're going to overthrow the Assyrians to the point where... Um, yeah, the Assyrians are just going to be gone. <laughs> like yep. here, and like it, it, it does not take very long for it to happen. So that's where you can get the whole idea. And the, obviously, the imagery there is like tripping and having your, um, I guess it is called a skirt. It's just weird to talk about that in a masculine way, but having that flip up and then having yourself be exposed while you're running around, that's kind of like the, it, it's basically the modern day picture would be like in the middle of you public speaking, your pants fall down <laughs> and like all of a sudden you're caught with everyone like laughing at you. That's kind of the imagery being used here. Uh, and then finally, before we move on to our next book, just because I like reading the last sentences or the last words of most books, but this is how it ends. 
It says, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So again, it's just driving home that point of, yeah, like if you deserve this is kind of what that verse is saying. And that's how it ends. I love that. That's like, that's basically the whole message of Nahum is that Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. It's going to suck real bad. And you earned it. It's kind of, <laughs> that's, that's how I would sum up the message of Nahum. So there you go. With that being said, Aaron. And you, and you can quote that and make sure to credit Evan. You can take that to the bank. <laughs> And cash it. No. Uh, yeah. And the next book we're going to hit this week is Titus. Uh, and so this is a letter written by Paul, uh, written around the same time as the second imprisonment, which is also second Timothy as well, which we talked about last week. Um, and while he's in prison, this is actually which leads to his impending death. Um, that happens as well. So this is what, this is, that's the context surrounding Titus and it, or the letter of Titus. Um, Paul will write, we'll see uh, in a manner where there's an inseparable link between faith and practice. Uh, I used to always say the idea of belief and behavior, they go hand in hand. That's what Paul's alluding to. Uh, and Paul, it's his, it, he's writing to uh, confront Titus in light of these false teachers that have arisen in Crete. Um, and the critique is based upon this idea of belief and behavior, this practice uh, rooted in faith. Um, and then he compares it to the idea of Christian living um, and qualifications for church leaders. Uh, we we don't really have much record or in, information about Paul's journey to Crete, um, but we do know he went there. That's why this letter is written. Uh, he completed a journey recently before this letter was written, uh, before his second imprisonment, uh, which results in churches being established. And he left Titus there in Crete uh, and then wrote to provide direction and support to Titus in the midst of these false teachers. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly simple book to read through. It's going to be pretty quick and short, but um, the, the heart behind most of what Paul is writing is proper direction and instruction. Um, and he actually kind of, I feel like, it's interesting because I feel like he kind of has some strong words for Titus. It's almost as if Titus has not been leading as well as he could have. It kind of carries yeah. that tone to me a little bit, uh, which is interesting because you'll see there's a couple things that I think allude to this as well. Um, open The opening section is verses 1, 1 through 4. It's longer than normal too, um, and but it, that's not abnormal because we also see similar lengthy openings in Romans and Galatians. Um, you also find up, he kind of sets the tone for some of the th thematic theological themes that we pick up as well. Um, he starts right out the gate after the opening talking about the need for proper leadership. So I want to read this. Um, this is where it says this. It says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. An overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Uh, and so you see this moment right out the gate after Paul greets everybody, he kind of sets a stage, sets a tone. He then begins to provide direction right away. And he's, it's this idea of proper leadership. And so he, he almost is like directing to Titus, hey, you were here for a reason. Uh, I need you to lead in that capacity. Um, he talks about the directions for ministry that he left Titus with. Um, we, do see, we do see something that's not totally ab abnormal, but is pretty rare. 
uh, as we only see a one other instance of something similar like this in Galatians, but there's not a Thanksgiving section in Paul's letter. Uh, where typically we see where Paul takes a moment to be thankful for the churches he's writing to, he affirms them, uh, but we don't see a Thanksgiving section in Titus here. Uh, and again, like I said, it's not it's it's a little unusual, but not unique because Galatians was 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 roughly the same way. We're in this opening portion. There's no. Agree. Uh, it's also not uh, just so you know. In, in typical first century letters, there's not oftentimes Thanksgiving given. Um, we see a figure uh, list as well that provides a portrait of uh, of the sort of leadership that needed for the new churches in Crete. The emphasis on good behavior, especially in the home, and the ability to teach. Uh, that's the type of leadership that. Uh, Paul would argue leads to uh, embody the fact that the gospel results in godliness. Uh, Paul shifts out of this direction for the need of leadership into addressing the problem, which is false teachers. And we see this in first or in Titus, not first Titus, in Titus chapter well, one. Well, technically, first Titus. First and second and third. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it says this in verse 10 to 16. It says, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. In other words, he's calling out fellow Jews. Uh, who claim to, uh, and you'll see this is the argument that plays throughout this entire cha- this entire book, is they claim to have faith, but their lives do not follow in alignment with what they claim to be. Um, he says this, it is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonesty. So you see the improper motives. One of the very their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is probably one of my f- the funniest statements and funniest lines. See, my favorite is the next verse after this. <laughs> the testimony is true. <laughs> For this reason, rebuke them sharply so they may sound be sent sound faith. It's just like, yeah, people always say that Cretans are always they're always liars and evil and gluttonous. <laughs> yep. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, one of their very own prophets, which is just funny. So it's something whoa, Paul. Yeah. Um, it's true. And so and the thing is like Paul's not afraid of Paul. But again, he's talking about these false teachers. He's describing these false teachers. Um, and he put Titus in this place to provide, almost to reform the church, to get it to fall back into alignment to the gospel truth and to live in light of the gospel. Um, so he continues on, verse 14, 15 says this, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. This is, this is the point of the, the whole letter. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Uh, so we see that the, the, this call out that Paul is now addressing. He's writing to Titus, but he's writing on behalf of the churches in Crete and saying, hey, there are false teachers who are not living as, as the gospel demand them to. Um, we see in chapter two, uh, which is the bulk of the section of the book, in chapter two, verse one, all the way to chapter three, verse eight, Paul is going to be describing the proper Christian living that's rooted in the gospel. And then he puts in a direct contrast to the behavior of the false teachers, um, but in conformity uh, to what is required to trust church leaders. So he, pr- he he's playing this, is painting this picture for Titus to remember, this is what it takes to lead the church. Anybody who's not following this standard isn't meant to lead. Uh, they shouldn't be out of, uh, they shouldn't be in leadership. You need to cast them out. Um, and he, he, again, he re- reinforces the right doctrine leads to right behavior. Um, we're also going to find in this bulk of the section, there's going to be two parallel units that describe right behavior, which is rooted in the gospel. And then close with the charge to Titus to teach these things with authority. Uh, he talks about proper living by age and gender groups, talks about the gospel. Uh, he talks about proper living, uh, particularly in respect to outsiders. Uh, and so the bulk of the section you're going to find, Paul is rehitting over and over and over again, that the right doctrine leads to the right behavior in these capacities and in these contexts. Um, he then shifts in chapter three uh, verse nine, he restates the problem. He refocuses on false teachers. 
that Paul uh, returns to the problem uh, and then follows up once again with a contrast to live uh, to to the, those who claim to live in light of the gospel but fail to live it out. Uh, I learned a new word. Uh, it was belial, belie, belie, b e l belie. Is that what it is? B e l i e. But it's the idea of like contradictory, living in a way that's contradictory. Oh. Um, so I, I had no clue, so I learned a new word, but I didn't put it in here because I, <laughs> I, I want to be simple. Um, so all of that to say, Paul is in Titus ra, um, refuting false teachers, and he's calling them out that they have a, they have a semblance of living according to the gospel, but they have their, their conduct doesn't match and fall in line. And you're actually going to see this theme in Pauline letters. Even today, as we continue to work through some of the books we're going to read this week, it's going to be repetitive, not just in Paul, uh, but but even in James that we're going to jump into in a little bit as well. Uh, there is this tension. And even in some of the Old Testament books, part of the reason why God's wrath and his judgment is being poured out because they're not living righteously as the gospel would intend them to. So uh, Paul closes in typical fashion, which is normal. He thanks people. He... he uh, Tells people, tells the, uh, Titus to greet people, and then he talks about his travel plans, and then that's the end of the book. And so, uh, the big, the big crux that the entire book is built on is the idea that the gospel transforms the way we live our lives. If these are church leaders, they need to be living according to the gospel, and their conduct must match and reflect the gospel. And he's calling them out because it doesn't. So, that's Titus. Do you see the? Um, this just made me think of it. That, that meme that uh, Jen's a pastor on staff with us that she shared about the how all of Paul's letters are outlined. But it was no, like, I haven't seen it. So it was like a slide, like of someone teaching, and it was like the basic outline of Pauline letters. And it was number one, this is Paul. I'm an apostle. Number two, I thank God for you. Number three, what the heck are you doing? Seriously, <laughs> stop it. Number four, Timothy says hi. <laughs> I was like, that is very, that is very accurate that's, for how. That's, no, I haven't seen that. Where did she send that? I don't that's funny. Where it was that? It was, it was a good time. It's mostly true, except for Galatians and Titus, though, because right. there's no thanks. Yeah, I thought it was so. In First Timothy, there's not a section of thanks because I was looking at it when you said it. But in Second Timothy, you're right, and these are Second Timothy and Titus are written about the same time. Mm-hmm. So he very much goes out of his way um, to express to Timothy how thankful he is for him, and he doesn't do that with Titus. So you might be right. Maybe Titus is you know he's dropping the ball a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, well, and that's 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 the tone it felt like in in. And I actually meant to say this, but like that's the tone it feels like when when you read Timothy against Titus. Titus was still a companion. Titus was still part of that missionary journey. And, and Titus was, I mean, and again, we don't have a lot of information about the journey Paul took to Crete. We don't have a lot of information, but what we do know is that Paul sent Titus to go lead in a strong capacity, but he comes out right out the gate saying, Hey, here's the problem. You need, you need to be leading properly. And right. he, he calls, he doesn't call him. I think it's more of like, a, a, here's, I'm just reinforcing what I've already taught you and trying. Um, so it was an interesting, the tone is a little bit different uh, in Titus than it was absolutely in Timothy. So... Well, before we we continue on with our, uh, I don't know what you call this, minor prophet epistle extravaganza <laughs> episode, uh, we do want to take a moment to say, hey, you know, you could leave us a review. That'd be helpful. As of today, Spotify has passed Apple Podcasts in the race to 100. So Spotify is at... We've officially made it a race. I forgot about that. Yeah. Spotify is at 88. Apple Podcasts is at 86. Who gets there first? I don't know. What do you win? I mean, just the... Uh, um, the fulfillment of you get the love and the won. affection of Evan. That's true. And the other the other platform will have none of that. No love or affection. <laughs> well, shut so, it down. I, whatever love and no. affection I did feel for you, beloved listeners, gone. No, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's fun to see podcast reach. And it was just, like I said, it was for me, it was a goal that I told Evan about at the beginning of the year. He's like, whatever, I don't care. 
but I did. I think it was a lot of fun to see if we we hit the triple digits. So, uh, and maybe maybe when we do, we'll uh, we'll have something special in store for a podcast episode. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be fun. But, I think our two hundredth episode is coming up soon ooh, too. Even so. fun, even more fun. Even look, funner. I should probably look that up to when that's happening because I think it's actually really close. <laughs> it's probably it was probably last week. <laughs> We're in real danger of recording and not even realizing that it's happening. So, anyways, yeah, that was Titus. And please leave us a review. We appreciate those who have so far. Exactly. All right. Well, next up, we are in the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is is dear to my heart because it wrestles with a lot of the same themes of Job. And in many ways, it's kind of like a Job in miniature, but it's very it's very different in the sense that. So they're the same. It's like in, a little baby Job. Yeah. Well, it's the same in that both men are openly questioning God and saying, why are you running the universe the way that you're running the universe? And then Job's response to, or God's response to Job is, okay, dress for action like a man. Who the heck are you to tell me how to run the universe? Put your big boy pants on, yep. what we like to say. His, uh, his reaction to Habakkuk is just kind of like, oh, bud, listen. Come here, man. Let me explain this to you. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's so different. It's hilarious. But here, I'll, we'll talk about it here in a second. So... Habakkuk is wondering about, and I'm sure all of the prophets must have been wondering about this, Lord, how long are you going to actually like keep putting up with Israel's sin? So at that at this point, Israel, the northern kingdom, sorry, Habakkuk is ministering in Judah. Um, Israel, the northern kingdom at this point is gone, and he is living in Judah. Judah is just still in rebellion. All these things are happening. Um, I don't remember, I didn't write down when exactly all this Habakkuk's ministry was happening. But remember, between Hezekiah and Josiah, there was Manasseh, who was not great, and his son, whose name I don't remember, but who cares, because he sucked too. Um, and so Habakkuk is kind of just wondering, how long are you going to put up with this? And I guess like, he could have been mentioning after Josiah too, so I don't want to peg him into a, a specific time. And so here's what he says, but he gets an answer much quicker than expected. So starting in verse two, it says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that if you were not... Uh, that you would not believe if you were told. Sorry, I totally skipped over that part there. I should have put a line <laughs> in there. So verse four is where Habakkuk says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Immediately God answers him. So this is not like the, in Job, right? He calls out for you know the better part of 30 chapters before he stops talking. And then God doesn't answer until chapter 40, 39. 38. I should know that. That's a, that's a, that's an L for me listeners. Um, he doesn't answer it. He's the, God is the very last person to speak as far as like the big poetic sections go in Job. Immediately God answers him and he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Side note, I've seen this on coffee cups a few times. It's a really funny verse because the next verse is behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. 
which, okay, interesting, interesting animal to use there, but whatevs. Uh, more fierce than the evening wolves, their horsemen prey proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their face, all their faces forward, and they gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So Habakkuk's like, Lord, look at all this injustice around me. How long do I have to put up with this? And God's like, oh, dude, no, no worries. He probably didn't call him dude, but no worries. Have you heard about the Babylonians? (laughs) Have you heard about the Chaldeans? They're like the worst. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like the Assyrians. They're going to come and take care of this for you. And so Habakkuk is, he's, I put, he's reasonably shocked because, um, and and here's the, I guess I'm I'm being a little tongue in cheek on my tone here. This addresses a very important question that is important for us to wrestle through. The nations that Yahweh uses for the punishment of Israel are even more wicked than Israel every time. And so like when Israel, the Northern kingdom, which is no, which is not great by any means, the Assyrians are worse. And God uses the Assyrians to punish the uh, to punish the Israelites. Um, the Judeans not great, um, although Josiah, you know, that was a good that was a good last hurrah of not sucking, and before it fell off again. <laughs> um, but then the Babylonians are worse. The mm-hmm. Babylonians are terrible, and so Habakkuk is wrestling through this idea of God. It's it's not right that you would punish us if our evilness is at, you know, whatever number, if our evilness is at a 75, it's not right that you would punish us with a nation whose evilness is at a 90. Like that, that doesn't seem fair. Um, and you know what? In one sense, I guess it's not. In another sense, uh, I like the way that Psalm says it, the Lord God sits in heaven, he does what he pleases. Um, and I also think the, uh, the pa- there's a passage in James that I don't, are you going to talk here? Well, I haven't seen your notes on James yet, so let me know if we're going to talk about this later. But the passage where it, it talks about the idea that we're all equally guilty under the law for sin. But no, I don't think I don't think I'm diving into that gonna, piece. Oh, okay. So there's a passage, and oftentimes it gets misquoted as saying that all sin is equal, which is not true, right? Because like the Bible, like mm-hmm. all sin is equal in the sense that all sin removes us from that level of perfection that would be yeah. needed for our justification. But obviously there is harsher <laughs> treatment for like murder than, than there is for lying in, in, in scripture. So it's kind of that way where Israel and Babylon are not equal in that one has done far worse things than the other, but they are equal in the sense that they are not following God's law. Yeah. And I think you can kind of see that playing out here a little bit. Um, and so Habakkuk wonders about this. He's saying, why? basically, why is it right? Like, have you looked at the Chaldeans? They're awful. And which is kind of a funny thing to bring up too, because like God full on describes like, yes, they're awful. Like I just, I just talked about that. Uh, But incredibly, God answers back directly once again. So chapter two is a description of the judgment coming for Babylon. And so, and again, I keep putting in the Chaldeans because that's how they're known in this book. So chapter two, if the question is, God, it's not fair that they're getting away with doing this. God's like, they're not, don't worry. Like (laughs) it's kind of similar to Nahum a little bit where it's like, yeah, like, I allowed the I allowed the Assyrians and the Ninevites specifically to plunder and take Samaria, but it's not going to go well for them. That's kind of what he's getting at in chapter two. Yeah, the Chaldeans are going to come and they're going to do my bidding and they're going to just cause havoc, but uh, they're not lasting super long either. So don't don't worry about that. And it, I mean, it is interesting because a, not all of them, but a lot of the Israelites who were forced to leave Jerusalem under the Babylonians or were forced to go through that war see the fall of Babylon in their lifetime. They're old, but mm. they see it. A lot of them do. 
Um, chapter three sees Habakkuk ask for another demonstration of mercy on Judah and wrath against her enemies. Um, so he's referencing the previous deliverance of Yahweh for his people. Specifically, he talks about Joshua and the battle where um, the sun and the moon stand still. So basically he's asking, you know, God, can you do this again? Like show mercy to your people once again and deliver us from our enemies, which is kind of interesting because remember in the very first part of the book, he's crying out, how long are you going to put up with this? By the end of the book, he's like, please, like, can we, can we have some mercy instead? Um, but ultimately, and this is what I like, this is what I love about Habakkuk and him and Job arrive at the same point where it's just trusting in the sovereignty of God and mm -hmm. trusting that God is going to, what God has planned is going to be good. And so he ends it with a note of finding hope in the midst of pain, uh, which is a lesson for we can apply it to ourselves today that it's always an important thing to look through, but specifically for the people of Israel, that is what the next couple generations are going to be wrestling with is how do we find hope in the midst of the temple's been destroyed? We're not even living in Jerusalem anymore. Like we talked about it with Esther last week, week before. I think so. Uh, yeah. one uh, of the, I think it was last week. Last week. Yeah. But this, uh, this maybe not. I think it was a week before. Anyways. One of those, one of yeah. those episodes. Most recently. Uh, but yeah, we, we talked about it with Esther where they're living in Persia and they're completely away from the temple. They're away from Jerusalem. How do they find hope in the midst of that? And how, yeah. you know, Mordecai, even though he never mentions the name of Yahweh, is cl clearly has faith that he, that God will be protecting them. Um, and I think that's what Habakkuk is getting at. So these are the last words of Habakkuk here. And it says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stall. So what's he describing there? He's describing famine. He's describing destruction. He's describing a country that can no longer feed itself and provide for itself. Yep. And then he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers and he makes me tread on the high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. I should have just cut that part out. Basically, yeah. If you're wondering, <laughs> that's how, that's how you should play it. Come on. Um, but no, I love, I love my favorite name of God is when it says the Lord God or God, the Lord, it's uh, Yahweh Elohim. And so it's basically saying, and it, it's used in Jonah, which is kind of what, what I thought was interesting about it. But um, Elohim is like the title and then Yahweh is the personal name of God. And mm -hmm. so when he's saying God, the Lord is my strength, he's saying Elohim, Yahweh is my strength, which I think is a really beautiful way of describing it because it's giving the power and the office of of God, but also giving the name and showing that you're intimately connected to and, and worshiping the, that specific, you know, specifically Yahweh. Yeah. So, and that's how he ends it. Kind of a, like I said, it's a hopeful note yeah. in the midst of a bummer. And <laughs> I think it, yeah, it's just, it's, and it also, it just has echoes of when it says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Um, that also just has echoes of Job with the, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Famous passage there too as well. So Habakkuk, very similar in that sense. And as a minor prophet, he's wrestling through important questions because it is yeah. it is a very valid question to ask, well, why is it okay that these worst nations are being used by God to punish the wickedness of, of Israel and Judah? And it kind of, he gets at the point of essentially, hey, that's God's choice to make, not yeah. ours. So yeah. uncomfortable answers, but answers nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I did have this thought as you were talking about, uh, the comparison of uh, like of Job and how it took Job 30 chapters to hear from God and Habakkuk, Habakkuk like it's seeming like less than a chapter. Um, I, I do think as a reminder, like there were prophets, the prophethood, if you will, like prophets were not established at Job's time because Job was written pre pretty early on. He, True. he lived pretty early in history. Um, and so the other side of it too is like Job had people talking to him 
And so there was conversations that were already going on, but Habakkuk had a prophet relationship with God. So I wonder if there's more access to the conversation that God would have. Um, but either way, nonetheless, still a legitimate question that I think is worth wrestling through for sure. Um, we're going to hit the other minor prophet as well. I think there's one more after this too. Uh, but Zephaniah uh, is is kind of a fun little prophet as well. He does end on hope as well, which I think is always fun to hear too. Uh, but we don't know a lot about Zephaniah. Um, we do know that Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden or protected, um, which could reveal some of the uh, piety of his parents um, as they may have trusted God during the godless. They have trusted God. Yahweh during the godless reign of Manasseh, who's ever Evan's favorite king. Yeah. Um, just the worst. Um, his genealogy, we see that in verse one, could be connected to Hezekiah the king, uh, as which was a good king in Judah at the time. Uh, the prophecy takes place during the reign of Josiah. So the northern kingdom at this point had already been exiled. So Israel does not exist at this point. Um, so it's just Judah. Uh, and then you'll see that there's references to Jerusalem. There's references to to God's people. Uh, but it's, it's in essence re- in reference to the nations that's still remaining. So uh, the, the people of Judah that are still present, uh, mostly just referred to even as uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Um, despite seeing the exile of Israel, we'll see that Judah at this point has refused to turn back to covenant obligations towards God. And then the reign of, uh, of Josiah, who is pretty pious, who's very uh, zealous for the Lord, uh, it provides an opportunity to make uh, a move towards covenant renewal. And God, through prophet Zephaniah, will find, will clarify the decision that lies before Judah. Um, God is calling for Judah's punishment, which is spoiler alert, but uh, because she has already shown herself referring to Judah as sinful. Uh, if she would repent, I love this. I, I stole this from the ESV uh, study Bible, but it says if she would repent and turn, perhaps God will forgive. Uh, and so I just love the perhaps there. I think it's funny. Uh, a very simple outline uh, plays out where judgment is coming in one chapter verses two to six. Verse one uh, just kind of gives us the who... Uh, um, Oh, dear Lord, who Zephaniah is, uh, where he's coming from, things like that. Talks about his lineage to uh, Hezekiah. Then he jumps right into uh, the judgment that is coming. We read this in chapter or chapter 1, verse 2 through 6. It says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the, of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. That's intense. It is super intense. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place and the names of the pagan priests along with the priests, which that's a good thing. Yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. Get rid of Baal. Uh, and then he says, those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. And to those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire him. This is the judgment that was called out right out the gate uh, of Zephaniah to Judah. Uh, God directs his attention against all the living beasts, uh, and then more specifically, his own people, uh, and the, he, the, which are represented by the city of Jerusalem. Um, and so it it's talks out. And then the bulk of this book is about what we've already talked about in Amos. Uh, you'll see some parallels, though, but is this is this one simple phrase the day of the Lord. Um, and we see the pretty much almost the rest of the book talks about the day of the Lord. Um, it can, it's, it's a multifaceted uh, prophecy with the day of the Lord, uh, which on one hand holds judgment. And I think this is so cool too, and so important to remember, but on the other hand also holds hope. So it is judgment. The day of the Lord brings judgment, but it also does bring hope. Um, it affects not only God's people, 
but others as well, both immediate, both in the immediate future of the time and the future fulfillment to come. Uh, and I, I think it's important to remember too, like God's intention in establishing a people of His own was not to hoard a group of people special to Himself, but it was to 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 develop a people that would then go into the world as they knew it and invite and be a bridge to draw all men unto God. That was God's intention of establishing a people, and so. The whole heartbeat that God has for humanity is that all might be saved. And he is working in his plan to establish his own people to show a place of belonging, to show a place of acceptance where the grace that can be drawing. And God's people rejected him. They found that they their eyes looked other places. And so the, the wrath that God pours out is against rejection is, is because of the byproduct of sin. Um so we see this conversation of the day of the Lord, uh, and there's a couple of sections here that I want to read. Verses, chapter one, verse seven and nine says, "Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice; He has consecrated His guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their their master's house with violence and deceit." So he calls out, this is who he's punishing. He, he, he focuses on God's people. And then he then the conversation shifts to verse 10. So it goes from God's people to now all of humanity. And it says this in verse 10 through 14. It says, on that day, this is the Lord's declaration. There will be an outcry from the fish gate, uh, a wailing from the second district. Sorry, I got that reversed, my bad. Uh, he talks about God, uh, people outside of his family. Then the conversation shifts to Judah. It shifts to Jerusalem. And he ta- I mean, the fish gate is part of the city, uh, the wall that was built and established within the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but he says, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district and a loud crashing from the hills. Will you residents of the hollow for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become their plund- will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. So you see this wrath that's coming against God's people and all humanity. It's the, these litany of punishments are then described for God's people and all of humanity because sin is a universal problem. So God is, is judging the reality of sin, the rejection of God as their, their provider, God as their, their God. And, and so we see this tension where he's, he begins to play out. You're going to establish wealth. You're going to plant vineyards, but you're not going to reap the benefits of that. You're going to settle down comfortably thinking you're safe and good because you think that God's going to do, he won't do anything good, but he's not going to do anything bad either. He's just a passive, you know, whatever God who doesn't care as much. Um, and so God proclaims his punishment. God proclaims the, the wrath that is coming. Um, and then I love this in, in chapter two, verse one through three, it says that the, that forgiveness is possible, that repentance is possible. His wrath is being poured out, but the small faithful may be saved. Those who repent, there is hope and grace. And I love that because he stops for a moment and says, all you who are, are my people who are, who are hiding, who are holding out hope, there's hope for you that who, who there, there's, there's opportunity for repentance and, and restoration as long as you come to me. Uh, and so he has this little moment of hope that we see in there. We, we see the shift where he talks to the nations um, and he begins to list the nations one by one. And this is where I go back to even what Evan, you were saying with Amos. Uh, it's just like this prophecy. 
that you you see God's people. Uh, and if I remember correctly, and I, I don't know why I can't remember this correctly, but Amos was about the the northern kingdom, so it was talking to Israel. Yeah, he, Judah was included, but it, but it, it was specifically to Israel, yeah. Israel, right? Uh, and so you see, it's similar to Israel, where they were cheering and yeah, get them, go, yeah, take them down. And all of a sudden, the conversation shifts to Israel. Uh, same things happening here in this section in, in chapter two, verse four through three eight. You'll see the same thing where the judgment first focuses on Israel's neighbors and enemies, and who Judah would have enjoyed condemning. He, they would have joined and said, yeah, get them, God. Like you would have seen the Philistines and Moab and Ammon. You would have seen Cush, Assyria, all of these kingdoms that God's wrath was going to be poured out, the judgment was going to be poured out. And the the, Ju, the city of Judah, the people of Judah are like, yeah, get them, get them, get them. And then it's like, in Jerusalem. And so it's, again, I almost I can almost picture this hush that falls over. Not that it just happened in the northern kingdom, but also the southern kingdom. Um, and so that only then do the people of Judah begin to feel the focus turn on them because they are just as sinful. Um, and so you see this, this tension, you see this reality of God's wrath being poured out because of sin, because of the rejection. Uh, and then, and then it ends chapter three. Uh, this isn't the, the ending words. I know you liked, I almost put them in there just for you, bro. Um, but we see this anticipation of hope in chapter three, wrapping up to the end of the chapter. Uh, and so I want to read this where he says this, for I will then restore pure speech to the people so that they all may call in the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. For beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day, I will not, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will, will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never be again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down, nothing with nothing to make them afraid. And I just love this picture of hope because, again, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day of wrath being poured out because of sin, but it also is a day of hope. And I, and I think that that's kind of the, the beauty of some of these minor prophets as we hear the judgment that they're calling out, that God is orchestrating and, t- and telling them to call out, because God is, is the judge, but he's also gracious. Um, and he intends that the nations should turn to him as well as his own people. And that will cause great rejoicing um, because he alone accomplishes salvation. And so that you see at the end of Zephaniah, this incredible moment. And even in, in chapter three, verse, I think it's uh, 17, I think it's, it's this, this incredible verse that I love. It says, uh, for the, God is in their midst. He is mighty to save. It says he will quiet them with his love. And it's such an endearing moment. And I think such a beautiful picture of what God's promising and the hope that we get to cling to as God's people. Well, God's people in Judah specifically, but also we anticipate in the, in eternity when God, his kingdom comes, is, is brought from heaven and earth, just like we see in Revelation. Uh, but there's hope and we have hope because God alone is the one who brings salvation. So, so that's kind of how Zephaniah wraps up the, the prophecies. It ends on a, a moment of hope as well, which again is always good. <laughs> it's always encouraging. Yeah, most most of the minor prophets, especially the ones dealing with Israel and Judah, end on a on a note of hope. So that is that is nice. It is nice to know that God's destruction isn't like you know forever, never coming back. Final. Yep. Well, moving on in our extravaganza, we're talking about Philemon. So Philemon is the final personal letter of Paul. So remember, those are the last few, uh, the two written to Timothy, the one written to Titus, and the one written to Philemon. Uh, they are different in that most of the other letters of Paul are written to churches, and they're meant to be mm-hmm. read 
out loud to the whole church, whereas these are written to a specific person. In the case of Timothy and Titus, they're written to pastors. In the case of Philemon, he is a lay person in Colossae, but he does have a very important role. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, we know the letter is written at a much earlier date than 2 Timothy and Titus. So remember, those two are written kind of the end of Paul's life, especially 2 Timothy, you you get the vibe that these are like the last words to a close friend is, is what he's getting at there. Um, we know that it's way earlier because Timothy is named as the co-author. So he's saying Paul and Timothy together were writing this and then we'll see who delivers the letter. But so it's, it's, it's happening at a much earlier date. Uh, Philemon seems to be a rich man who houses the church in Colossae. Uh, so what that means is that obviously back then you're not building, you know, New churches, big auditoriums. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're not. You're not building buildings to house the church. So they would be housed in homes. And when we think of homes, we can think of you know obviously smaller homes that most people would have lived in back then. So you would find a rich person, someone who had con- converted, someone who trusts in Jesus, uh, and then who can fit you know the amount of people that you need to fit in order to actually have you know the, a full meeting of the church in the area. So Philemon has a house big enough. From that, we can infer that he's a, he's a pretty wealthy guy. Uh, and then we can also, I, I would think of him as like a pillar of the church. So he's not the pastor. He's not that level of person, but it's kind of like, and we, we talked about this last week with some of those um, people in our church who they're not, yeah, they're not paid staff, but they're just pillars of the church, constantly support that yeah. sort of thing. I would, I would call Philemon one of those people. Uh, so he is, Paul is writing a letter to address a personal personal issue that has arisen between the men. Um, not a conflict yet, because I think Paul's kind of revealing it a little bit here. Um, but Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, who at some point had run away and joined Paul on his missionary journeys. And so we don't know if um, exactly the story of how all this happens, but at, at some point Onesimus escapes, finds Paul, joins Paul in ministry, and now we're going to actually, the, the book is really short, so I'm just going to cut out the intro in the very end. So, ha, huh, I'm not reading the very end of this one. Well, the prophets, you like to do that with the prophets. That's true. Especially the prophets. Um, but in this one, we're just going to read the meat of the book. It's it's pretty short, so it's going to, and then we'll discuss it here and get a couple of points. So, this is starting in verse eight. It says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you and to do what, what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Weird flex, but okay. Yeah, is, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a, for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. That's another flex. Uh, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. 
And then, yeah, so he signs off there. So that is the, that is the main message of the letter. So a couple things that stand out. Um, Paul is really not afraid to ruffle Philemon's feathers. Nope. <laughs> so he's not. He's definitely not sucking up to the guy at all. So the two things he says are, um, I can straight up command you to do this, but I don't want to. And when he says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you so that your obedience is not by compulsion, he's basically saying, yeah, I could just like... He could stay with me, and I, that wouldn't bother me one bit. But I'd rather ha- I'd rather give you the chance to be the good guy here. So Paul's Paul's tone is a little bit like, yeah, I don't know, it's it's in- it's interesting. Well, yeah. well, you see the you see the authority Paul has, right? I mean, that that's I mean, and he's not he's not right. Like, yeah, when I say weird flex, or whatever, like we get a little. I mean, to use your phrase earlier, like we get a little tongue in cheek about it, right? Where we get mm-hmm. a little bit sarcastic and funny about it. But at the end of the day, like Paul Paul understands the authority he has. As one who has established churches, as one who is a, a a an apostle of Christ to go build churches, to go reach people, to to establish these things, he has the authority to to direct and give orders. And and in the, in the ancient world, in the New Testament world, like most people won't disagree. Like most people can't say, "Well, I'm not going to do that," because like no, because like the the understanding of authority, the understanding of of coming under authority, the understanding of God's call and election and and all of those things. So there is, there is in some respects, like, yeah, it looks like he's, he's flexing a bit, like saying, hey, I, I've got the authority, but he's not using it to be abusive or manipulative right. either. So that, that's the other thing too, just to be careful about understanding Paul's intent was to be very blunt and very direct and very black and white. That's Paul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was, I don't think he had good tact. I think he was just clear, honest, and to the point. Uh, and so you see that play out here as well. Well, yeah, because the second thing he says, like, kind of could ruffle feathers was, you know, he, he paraphrasing, Hey, if you do this, I would owe you one. Um, speaking of owing people things, remember that time I told you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saved right? your soul. <laughs> like that's kind of seriously that's what he's You're saying. indebted to me. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I well, I'll, call, this, I'll call it square. <laughs> yeah. I Paul write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you're owing me, even your own self. Yep. Right. And then he just took, if that, if that wasn't clear in the next verse he says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So yep. Good yeah, time. That's so funny. Um, but obviously the main message here is that Paul has told churches before, and we've seen it in, in multiple letters, that masters and slaves were to treat each other as brothers and sisters of Christ, which in, in Christ, which is a very radical thought at, at the time, especially um, because there was all, almost every culture at that point, And I say almost thinking that it's all, but maybe there's one I'm not thinking of, had the idea that they were the most superior culture and race in the world. So a, a Across America is no different. Yeah, you're not wrong a little bit there. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's this idea of like the Jews all the time, right? Where they look down, they look down the Gentiles. Like, why would God be saving the Gentiles? The Greeks very much thought of themselves as like, oh my gosh, we're like the great Greek, the deep thinkers, and these stupid Romans came along and they kind of ruined everything. The Romans very much think of themselves as like, we are destined to rule the world because we are greater. Like, every single nation, every single people group, for the most part, viewed themselves as superior to other people groups. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying, no, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he says in Christ, right? I, I keep forgetting the, the epistle this part's in, but there's neither Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Um, there's neither male nor female. And there's neither master nor bondservant. It's this idea that Philemon and Onesimus on earth are not equal in the sense of Philemon obviously has tons of wealth available to him and Onesimus did not even own his own freedom. Um, but in Christ, they are equal. And that's what Paul is getting at. And it, it's just this whole idea that 
Philemon has every legal right to put Onesimus back in change. When Onesimus comes, and so, th- sorry, that's that's who's delivering this letter. Onesimus is coming back to Philemon with this letter. Yep. Uh, and theoretically, with also a letter to the Colossians. It has Paul's seal on it. Yep. Um, so, when Philemon, when Onesimus comes back, Philemon has every legal right to say, how dare you? And then put him back in chains and he would live out the rest of his life or at least the rest of his term as a slave to Philemon. Um, but what Paul is getting at is that God has other plans for Onesimus and Philemon is called by God in this moment to release Onesimus specifically for the work of God. So it's it's abandoning something and, and I, he doesn't have the moral right, I guess I would say, to keep Onesimus, but he has the legal right to do that. And he's giving up that legal right specifically for the gospel yeah. because- and what Paul's getting at is that what Onesimus is doing with me here right now is more important than anything else that's going on. And I want you to release him back to me. And I like to think Philemon does. So we don't, we don't get the answer for sure, but um, I don't know. I think there would be a Philemon too, if he didn't, you know what I mean? Like first and second Philemon, if, if he didn't comply there. So yeah, it's just, it's a very short book. It's among among the shortest books of the New Testament, right there with Jude and, and the second letters of John, uh, second and third letter of, letters of John. Um, but it's an incredibly powerful thing. And I think it's one of those aspects where it's it's very uncomfortable for us today to look back into some of the injustices that were happening and not have it like just be outright said, you know what I mean, in that moment, hey, don't do this anymore. Um, but I think it's so much of, of the Bible is not concerned with the political changes that would naturally happen as a result of of people becoming Christians. And it's very much more concerned of, in the world you live in right now, how do you live as a Christian? So in a world where there are masters and slaves, how do you live as a Christian? And because the other one I always talk about is like, think about how the Christians were being rounded up, they were being killed, they were being persecuted. Um, the church of Thessalonica, and those letters were written in like the 40s. It was very early on in the church. And their persecution was so brutal that they thought that this is the end times, we're here. Um, but never is it said in scripture, throw off the chains of the Roman empire, rebel, fight now. Like it's, what, what is he doing? It's saying in a world where you are oppressed, how do you live as a Christian? And that's kind of what it gets at here. So it's it's a, it's an uncomfortable thing to wrestle through because we're so far out of that out of that world today. But it's also just realizing that what Paul and what God is getting at in the new te- what Christ is getting at in in the New Testament and through all these things is this idea of in the world that you live, how do you live out Christ? How do you bring people to Christ? That's the most important thing. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in this in this letter to Philemon. Yeah, that's well said. So we're going to jump into uh, the book of James now, uh, which is a book, I'll be honest with you, we could spend a whole lot of time on. Uh, And so I'm just going to try and give us (laughs) a quick intro overview of this entire thing. Uh, It's fun because Evan and I, we got to co-teach a discipleship class uh, back in the middle of COVID, uh, Zoom discipleship. We talked through the book of James. Um, And let me just be honest with you, this is a brutal book. (laughs) Every time I read it, even revisiting it for today. I'm just like, oh man, I don't know if I want to read James again. So There's some conviction to be found. Oh, absolutely, and it's and it's always going to hit. So uh, a couple quick things about James. He is the ha- he's the half brother of Jesus. Um, one of the things that I thought was the most profound uh, was that he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when he uh, converted to Christianity. That's where he believed in in Christ as the Messiah. Uh, and so he was a pivotal leader within the Jewish Church. Um, Upon conversion, he was also instrumental in establishing the Christian message to the entire Jewish world. I believe this, you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
uh, he was he was thrown off the top of a temple, and that's how he died. Yes, right? according to tradition, yeah. Yeah, so this is not in the Bible. We don't see that, but we do in Jewish and, and extra biblical resources. Uh, we see the, the way he died was being tossed. He was brought up to the top of a temple, uh, and Jewish re- religious leaders threw him off the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really sad. Uh, he's writing to uh, the called the dispersion. We see that in chapter one, verse one, who is a servant of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Simply means that just means that the the, the, 12, the God's people, the 12 tribes spread throughout the known world. Um, there's persecution that has happened. So they've spread, they've all kind of ran for cover and safety. Uh, and so James is writing to uh, all of these people. So this is a letter that would be circulated not to a specific church, but all throughout the region to all the different people uh, that are within within the Christian faith. Um, primary theme for this letter is uh, living out one's faith uh, in the midst of a hostile world. Um, I've I've often heard I've I've heard it reviewed or re, not reviewed I've heard it seen as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Yeah, uh, and I'm going to read a section here that kind of you'll see kind of can be a kind of a bullet point thought by thought uh, segment which will kind of give that vibe of what Proverbs can be as well. Uh, and so that that's the the context surrounding who the author is. Uh, I, I just love the fact that he he didn't he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was until after he rose again. Um, which just begs the, which just begs making the point. Like if someone says they're going to die and raise again for the, and they do it, you, you got to do, you should probably listen to what they had to say, right? Yeah, that's that, an Andy Stanleyism, but it's so true. That's a big, uh, that's a big mark in the believable column. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, and so that's James's story. He, he didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was, didn't believe what Jesus said, that what Jesus said he was going to do. He did it. James is like, I was wrong. <laughs> Uh, and he gave the rest of his life um, to to the faith in Christ and helping other people, especially his Jewish audience, his his Jewish brothers and sisters, um, what it means to live uh, a Christian life. Uh, and so then he, he so that's the, that's how he plays everything out. Uh, like I said, the greeting in chapter one, verse one, and I I wrote this down because I think it's really kind of significant knowing that he was not a believer, that he calls himself a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ it doesn't refer to him as his brother Jesus. Doesn't refer it's it's the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and I just I just appreciate the the humility that he shows in that f- even greeting there. Um, he starts off uh, with this idea of testing of faith, uh, and so this is a bigger section I want to read. But um, he just talks about trials. He talks about uh, that. The reality of trials is they test our faith in order to make spiritual pilgrimages complete. I love the way that that was phrased, so I stole it again from the ESV Study Bible. Um, and but the reality is like the, the part of part of the trials that we receive are some can be considered and should be considered as good gifts from God um, that He gives us people in order to make them whole. So in this section specifically, this idea of testing faith, He talks about joy in trials. He talks about the wisdom from God for trials. He talks about the place of the, of the rich and the poor before God. Uh, talks about the reward for those who endure. So uh, I'm going to read through these, and and the hope is that you'll kind of see these little proverbial moments where here's you know here's this the section of joy and trials, here's the section of wisdom from God and trials, and it's almost it, it's I would not encourage this when it comes to scripture at all, but it can in essence carry a weight being pulled out on its own and not in the full context of the passage. And I think it's always important to read the full passage to get the full context to understand what scripture is really saying. Uh, but I do think that the book of James allows some deep, very profound thoughts that hopefully challenge 
you as they do challenge me. So t- uh, chapter one, verse two says this, consider great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Proverb one, Proverb two, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. But let him ask with, with faith, without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven by, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstance boast in his exaltation. Again, another proverb. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Then he says this, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And it just continues going on, and I'm going to stop reading there. But we see in this first section the idea of testing faith. Uh, and, and he James is breaking down very short, very simple phrasing and terms to challenge the believers. Because remember, they're spread out. They're facing persecution. They ran away to hide and look for safety in the midst of the world that was hostile towards him or towards Christians. Uh, and so you see this tension. You see this, this thing play out. James shifts the conversation to this next section of hearing and doing the word. Um, again, this is something we, we will probably recognize a lot of the, some of the thoughts and the passages from the book of James, because they're oftentimes used the idea of don't be hearers of the word only, but doers also. Um, but the central theme in this section of the, of the letter is that Christian is uh, practical Christianity mandated the gospel and characterized by both truly hearing and then resolutely doing the truth. And so obedience is the hallmark of a true child of God. Uh, and so he hits this idea of doing uh, not just hearing, but doing the hard work. Obedience is is a, a really important piece to following Christ. Um, he then hits this conversation of the sin of partiality, which I think is really important. And it goes in line kind of with the, the thought through Philemon um, and just the idea of uh, no matter what place we are in, no matter the, the the situation, how are we going to honor God? How are we going to live in a righteous manner to, to honor God? Uh, and he compares the rich and the poor. Uh, we see this already having been emphasized in verses 9 through 11, also in verse 27. Now in chapter 2, it comes back up, this idea of the rich versus poor. It, it, it's placed in center stage. And there's a warning against discriminating against the poor in favor of the wealthy in a Christian assembly. And here's what I'll be honest with you. Reading this again for today, I was like, oh, Lord, my bias is to go towards people that I have in common moments with, or I, the people that I have, I, I feel more in common with, I go talk to them more mm-hmm. than if I'm driving down the street. And it's literally for me. And again, I want to be very careful not to be super legalistic about this. Uh, but I think we've got to stop and think through the, the, the filter of, as I'm driving into, into our, our city, sometimes there's individuals on the corners that are, that have cardboard signs and they're asking for money. They're asking for help. It's the hardest thing in all the world for me to look at them. And, and even be willing to smile or say hi because end up they're asking for something and I'm not going to give them or I don't have the money to give them. Um, I appreciate the signs in our city that say don't support panhandling, things like that, uh, but, it, but they're people. And, right. and sometimes it's easy for me to filter my life and how I view people through what James calls out as favoritism, preferring the wealthy over the poor. And he's talking about in the assembly, in the gathering, because – Back in the New Testament, back in the ancient times, they would gather together in a home like a rich, like a Philemon's house. There would always be food involved. 
Um, but in this situation, there would be moments where the poor are kind of ostracized and put to the outer courts where they're not really engaged or able to have some of the better food, that they are left to like meager rations or meager portions or even not even substantial things. And so James is calling out their view and their response and their engagement with people. Uh, so don't show favoritism or partiality. And I love this in Romans, or not in Romans, sorry, in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I think this is really important. It's referred to as like the royal law of love. It says this in verse 8, but indeed, if you will follow the royal law prescribed in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Self. Self. And <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Which that in and of itself is a a sucky statement. (laughs) Uh, For who said don't commit adultery also said don't commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are still a lawbreaker. Um, But this whole idea of law, favoritism and discrimination are violations of God's kingdom law of love. Uh, And so James is literally calling out Jewish Christians to be mindful of that. And in and, and, and the dispersion, it's not just Jews alone now. It's Jews and Gentiles having fleed together to, to find safety to gather as Christians. So they're intermingling in these gatherings. And James is calling out their favoritism towards those who are wealthy versus poor. Um, and so you see this, this idea of sin of partiality that James calls out. Um, he hits a, a pretty huge topic that, again, is something I think many of us are familiar with. The idea of faith without works is dead in chapter 2, 14 to 26. Um, he continues on the theme of hearing uh, hearing in faith that must lead to doing in works. Um, and it, it, it sometimes has the appearance that James is contradicting Paul's statements of it's for grace you've been saved through faith and not a result of works that we find in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, but in reality, there's no dichotomy between faith and works. To Paul and James, they would both agree that the base of salvation is grace alone through faith with works, not as the basis, but as a necessary result. Uh, and so we see this, this progression where faith without works is dead. We see a re- his, James's response to a critic that says, well, you have your faith. I have my deeds. We're good. Uh, and James point blank says, well, let me show you my faith by my deeds uh, because faith without works is dead. And you show me your your works without faith, because th- those two things have to they go together as a result. That actions are a result from faith. Um, and he, then he uses the, the the examples of Abraham, and he uses the examples of Rahab, uh, whose both actions were a result of faith first in God um, and God's promises, which justified them to be considered righteous. So he talks about this faith versus works. Um, he moves on into the conversation uh, about dissension in community. He calls this sin. Um, and this is the lengthiest section of his entire letter. Um, dissension and slander were a problem. And it's interesting because he he attaches the, the idea of taming the tongue as the solution to dissension and slander. Uh, and potentially the slander and this dissension was happening among leaders and teachers, but also involves the whole body of Christ. Um, and so he talks about the idea of the danger of the tongue and the solution is wisdom from above. And then he talks about the warning against worldliness. And so there's this this... this this call out, if you will, this clear, abrupt point um, that there's dissension among you, and it starts with the tongue. If you can tame your tongue, you can. If you and he uses illustrations like the rudder on a ship. He uses illustration like uh, a bridle in a horse's mouth. That you something so small and seemingly insignificant can control the whole ship or the the horse entirely. And he refers to our tongues much the same way. If we can tame our tongue, if we can control what we say and how we say it then we, we actually won't see dissension. We won't see gloss, gossip and slander and those things play out. 
which is important. Uh, this next section is one near and dear to my heart. Uh, the sins of the wealthy, we see verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 to 5, 12. James condemns the sin of the wealthy, of, the, uh, of arrogant presumption and motivation, of making a profit according to one's will. Um, what I mean by that is... Uh, the first time I got to speak on a Sunday was out of this passage in James chapter 5. Weep and wail. Uh, weep and wail, all you rich, foolish rulers. Um, and so that's why it's near and dear to my heart. But but James really is takes a moment to call out uh, all of the wealthy individuals because they are boasting about tomorrow. In other words, they're saying, hey, we'll go here and make a profit, and we'll go there and make a profit, but they don't consider God's will. They don't consider the fact that our, we are, uh, is it Ecclesiastes? We're but a vapor, a yep. mist. Um, we're, we're Solomon, and they would know this. But where Solomon would say, like, life is but a vapor. You are but a vapor. You are but a mist. Um, and But they're, they're presum- presuming their own ability to produce wealth. They're presuming that their plans will work out. And so James calls them out. Stop being so presumption, presumptive. Stop being so arrogant. Um, then he talks about the warning to the rich, where that's in chapter 5, weep and wail, all you rich, foolish rulers. In essence, because they're, they're making a profit by not paying their workers. Um, and so that they're robbing the poor because they're not paying the committed or appropriate wages to their workers to gain a bigger profit. That's what he calls them. So he calls them out for that. Then he talks about patience and suffering. Um, and this was interesting too. So I'll, I want to read this section uh, for us. And it says this, that therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome of the Lord. That's the second time Job's come up. And they have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any with any other oath, but that your yes be yes and your no mean no, so that you will not fall under judgment. But it comes at this end of this section where James is calling out the wealthy. He's, ta- he's challenging them to stop boasting. He's challenging them to pay appropriate wages, to be fair. Um but then he also talks about this idea to where he shifts the conversation away from the rich and to the poor, and he issues a call for patience and suffering to them, it, which in other words, he's saying, hey, listen, God's going to vindicate you. Don't fight back. Don't try and make it all, all work out for you. Don't, don't work, worry about you. God's got your back, which is in some respects paralleling a lot of the conversations we've already had. Um, within the different minor prophets where it is this tension of like, God, you alone are the provider. You are the one whose justice, your will prevails. Even though we don't understand it, why, the evil, why does evil prevail? Why are these kingdoms beating uh, you know, and conquering your people? And, and God's response was simply like, I got them, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Much in the same way, James is reminding the poor in these situations who are getting taken advantage of, who are not being paid right, rightly and, and fairly, they're saying endure. James is challenging them to endure because look to the prophets, look to eternity, look to what God has promised. The judge is coming. Don't complain. Don't slander. Don't fight back. Trust that God will vindicate you, which I think, and I, and I bring it up because I think it's important to understand there is this, this I'm going to get mine mentality in the world that we live in today. There is, gonna, there is this, well, I, I've been wronged, so therefore I need to make it right. I've been wrong. Therefore, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. 
I think you got to be very prayerful about that because I think one of the warnings that we receive from James here is to be patient in suffering, is to understand that it's God who is, it's vengeance is mine, says God. Like that, God is God is a, a defender of the weak, of the widow, of the orphan. God is a, a protector. God is a, a refuge. He is a provider. Um, that's who he is. And so in some respects, we've got to be very prayerful and very very diligent to guard against what we think we are due or what we deserve, because at the end of the day, we deserve eternal separation from God. And he built the bridge back with his, his son. So at the end of the day, he's the provider and we can trust in him because he's faithful to provide. And so James is reminding the poor in the midst of the the, the persecution they face, in the midst of the unfair treatment, to look uh, to the prophets, to look to uh, the history of God's provision to find hope and be strengthened uh, in the midst of the suffering they face. And so he's challenging them to be patient in suffering. Um, he then shifts into, a, again, a well-known passage, I guess, if you've been in church for a long time, the prayer of faith. Um, and it's interesting because I, I don't know if I've ever read it this way before, um, because I've always read like pray, you know, the, the righteous, effective prayer, uh, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much, is powerful and effective. Um, but it is something about this idea where prayer is the method to curb and deal with some of the issues and the themes found in this letter. I didn't, I don't know if I've ever picked up on that nuance before, even when we did the discipleship in, in, yeah. in 2021, I think is what it was. Um, but the idea that when James is talking about the prayer of faith, it's, he has in mind some of the things he's also already called out or things that he's already brought direction to so far in the letter of James, that ultimately to tame one's tongue, the best way to do that is to pray for one another, that ultimately to, to, to see unity and to see, uh, a, a grace-filled life hinges on a willingness to pray because the prayer, and you offer sometimes prayer in faith, even though you may not have the strength to do it. So I thought it was an interesting way to look at it uh, at the end there, but prayer uh, being the method there uh, to curb one's tongue, to tame one's tongue is a really powerful way to do it. And then finally, James concludes, uh, and these are the last words of James. And so I think it's fitting. I actually thought of you as I was writing these notes. Good man. Concluding admonition, 519 and 20, the last two sentences says this, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The end. Boom. James is very abrupt. His style is not like Paul. His style is very abrupt. There's no concluding greeting as in most New Testament letters. Instead, James ends by calling the community to action. Uh, and I thought it was interesting and kind of funny that James is just like, okay, I'm done. Move on. Uh, no, this. no Jude says hi at the end. Yeah. Like it's, it's none of that. So, um, but he calls him into action, uh, and in light of every, it's almost like the last, like in light of everything I'm saying, do something about what I'm saying. And so, uh, that's how James ends a book, but it is, and I, and I apologize to all you listeners. This is a very fast overview of the book of James, um, partially because, that's just what we have to do in this episode of the podcast, especially with doing six different books. But uh, that's what we're going to read this week as well. James is a phenomenal book. Uh, it's probably going to bring conviction in my life as well as probably yours too. Well, listeners, I'm sorry, Aaron just lied to you because, of course, this is the seventh book and final book that we're talking about. Oh, that's about right. Today. We have eight. No, seven. We, we, had, we, we had eight. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But we pushed one to next week because of the Zechariah. we only read half of it. That's what My it goodness. Sorry. But here I thought it was seven total, not eight. My bad. We have reached the end. That of our epistle and minor prophet extravaganza with the book of Haggai. Haggai. Or Haggai. Haggy. I don't know. I'm just messing just, We'll know. just call him Hag. Hags. Uh, have a great summer. So uh, Haggai marks the final group of the minor prophets, uh, the ones that minister in the post-exilic period. So these are the final three. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all three 
uh, minister in that post-exilic period. And what that means is it's that period where um, the kings of Persia had allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. So remember, Ezra and Nehemiah is taking place during the post-exilic period. Esther is as well, but obviously it's in Persia as opposed to in Jerusalem. So, and Haggai is part of the first group that returns under Zerubbabel. Him and Zechariah both have this in common. They both go under that first that first group. So, remember back, listeners, beloved listeners, remember back a few weeks when we talked about the book of Ezra, and there was that point where the work stops because the king commands it. Uh, we are told in that passage that Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the people to begin the work anew. Uh, and then I love that in that chapter, it actually talks about how um, the people resumed their work and they had the prophets with them and the prophets were with the people and supporting them. And I kind of imagine, uh, I don't know if this is what is, this isn't a for sure thing, but I feel like what's implied in that passage is that Haggai and Zechariah are saying what the word of the Lord is. And then they're also kneeling down and grabbing bricks and getting to work. That's what I kind of, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like that's kind of what I imagine happening here is that the prophets are not, you know, just watching over this whole thing, but they're, they're laboring with the people to get this done. Uh, so it's a good picture. I like it too. Yeah, it's a nice one. Zerubbabel. 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 <laughs> uh, in the first chapter, we see Haggai rebuke the people of Jerusalem for focusing on rebuilding the city and their homes specifically while neglecting the temple. Uh, poignantly, he points out that the, the new homes in Jerusalem look beautiful while the temple still lies in ruins. Uh, and so he, he goes out, he says, hey, you know, basically, come on, guys, you you're losing sight of what's the biggest priority here. Obviously, the first thing we need to do is have the temple be built so we can worship God the way that he's commanded us to worship him uh, and the city and the homes and all those things can come second. So here's what's interesting. After he says this, here's what how, here's how the people respond. So this is in Haggai chapter one, starting in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, and the Lord their God sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came out and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month of the year of Darius the king. So I always talk about how the post-exilic post period is it, it begins laying the foundations for what we see Israel is like during the time of Christ, because the time of the the Jews at the time of Jesus bear almost no similarity to the ones at the time of like David. There's and the but in the in the period after the exile when they come back, that is when they begin to start looking like you know what I mean. Like the culture is beginning to be that way because part of it is all throughout history. What's Israel's big thing? They're worshiping other gods and they don't listen to prophets. What's happening here? There's really no talk of idol worship. It's just like, hey guys, come on get your priorities straight, but it's not like, hey, stop worshiping Baal. And the second part is the prophets have the word of the Lord and they're like, no, you're right. Sorry. And they get back to it. Like the people actually listen to Haggai here. So, I mean, I, I'm sure like all of the other prophets were looking down and just being like, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Where was this? Where was this? When Why I was you send with... me then God? Why? Yeah. Isaiah's like, when I said, send me and you said they weren't going to listen, I could have been Haggai for you, Lord. Why did I have to be the guy who, 
Yeah. I probably could have said it even better. Ezekiel's <laughs> like, I cooked on cow dung for you, and they just listened right off the bat. Oh, maybe they're, I'm sure they weren't actually that mad, but uh, no, not if they're with not if they're with God. That yeah, time. but anyway, that's that's what's happening. Uh, so the beginning of chapter two is a bunch of encouragement. It's funny. It's funny because the tone changes because the very beginning of it is rebuke, and even then, it's not like this. Woe to you! The day of the Lord is coming that we've been experiencing the last few. It's just, hey, cut it out. This is wrong. The people listen, and then chapter two is just a bunch of encouragement. It's just the Lord being like, hey, great job, everybody. Here's all the blessings that you get for listening to me. And then I put in the notes like, wow, it's it's almost like um, Yahweh would bless the people of Israel if if they obeyed him. Huh? Huh? Go figure. What a what a lesson it's taken. No, that's not true. What a lesson it's taken <laughs> centuries to learn. Um, and then in the back half of chapter two, it's more encouragement to continue to live according to the law. So this is the theme that we'll see really fleshed out in Ezra. Remember, Ezra comes back and his big thing is the uh, the intermarriage law. Um, but you kind of get the idea that Ezra is pushing forward like, hey, we're, we're back. We're not worshiping other gods. Good work. But Good we job. also, yeah, we need to rebuild the temple and we need to focus on actually living according to the law, which I think you actually get here the um, the beginning of the Pharisees a little bit where – they're rightly zealous to live according to the law and to not fall into the the traps that their forefathers had. And some of them inadvertently go so far that they just make up things in the law. And that's what Jesus is having to fight. So Jesus is having to fight pretty much the opposite of what most of the prophets were having to fight as far as he's not trying to get them to worship other gods. He's trying to get them to see like, hey, you're misinterpreting the, the word here. Uh, and then finally, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. The book ends with one final word from Haggai. And he says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and make you like a signet reed ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So just a cool moment to honor. Zerubbabel there, where all of a sudden, like, and you can kind of see what, because what's happening, right, in this moment, the Persian kings are being a little bit harsh, which mm-hmm. is not the norm. Normally, the Persian kings are pretty cool. Um, I shouldn't say normally. I guess like half the time, the Persian kings are pretty cool. And maybe half of them are the Median kings, because like Darius with Daniel and stuff, he's he's really the only cool one there. Um, <laughs> but we get that in the book of Ezra. The, I forgot that I didn't write down the name of the king, but one of the kings of Persia orders the work to stop. And then all of a sudden, what's happening after all of this? Well, Zerubbabel was being honored as the first leader of the remnant. And then pretty soon after this, within a generation, you get, um, I should have totally written down his name. I don't remember. The king who is the king during the time of Nehemiah, who is super awesome. Artaxerxes? Yeah, Artaxerxes. Yeah. Uh, you get that king who is basically just full on like, yeah, all about all about Jerusalem. Love you guys. Like, get it built. And you see this kind of like the the rebuilding and the glory of the city as well. So it's cool to kind of be able to look forward to that as well. And then eventually to look forward into the, I think this is also very much talking about the day of Christ's return as well, when all the nations so bow and worship the Lord there. And it makes it makes me think that Zerubbabel will, will be among the people that, and hopefully that is the last time I have to say his name. No, it won't be. We we'll probably talk about him in Zechariah. But uh, <laughs> it makes it yes. makes me yeah, it makes me think that Zerubbabel will be one of the. Uh, the people that God honors in that moment as well. Not the moment is returned, but yeah, it's that whole thing. So there you go. Listeners. There's Haggai. 
You stuck it through. Thanks for the marathon with us. You made it through the extravaganza. I'm a little winded, but I'm, I'm just kidding. That was, that was a lot. But hey, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a ministry of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. Uh, and if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can do that. Also on our website, there's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening. Thanks. Have a great day. And don't forget, you can also download our church app, grove.church. Search in the, in the app store with whatever dot you use. What a good point.